Good morning. It's wonderful to see you all here today. I thought I'd try something a little different and preach from this side of the chancel this morning. I like being a little deviant once in a while. <laughs> Keeps people guessing. This morning we continue our series on David concerning the subject of human relationships. Last week, Reverend Dr. Michael did an absolutely phenomenal job talking about David's relationship with Jonathan. David and Jonathan sitting in the tree. I loved it. And this morning, we're going to take a look at the issue of integrity within the relationship of David and Saul. Now, the relationship of David and Saul started when David was called to King Saul's court to be King Saul's armor bearer and also to play the harp for him. It was said that King Saul was tormented by an evil spirit. Some scholars think it may have been some sort of depression, but no matter what it was he ailed from, David would come and play his harp, and King Saul would feel relieved and feel better. David also did something that was pretty phenomenal. At the time, Israel was at war with the Philistines. And the battles kept going back and forth. Sometimes Israel would win, sometimes the Philistines would win. But there was something different in this battle. Because the Philistines brought forth this gigantic man. He was the biggest, baddest, meanest dude there was. No one in the Israeli army would fight him. They were all terrified of him. But David, who had faith that God was on his side, said, I'll take him on. So he went into the battleground with nothing more than a slingshot and a stone. And he was able to kill Goliath. The people rejoiced. They were just absolutely relieved that this giant was dead and the Philistines retreated in shame. And so they began singing, and they sang in their song that Saul had killed thousands, but David had killed his tens of thousands. Uh-oh. I know from my past, whenever I worked for somebody, you never, ever, ever wanted to outperform them, especially not ten times better than them. It didn't matter if you were faster or stronger or smarter, it's never a good idea to outdo the boss, right? Because it usually leads to trouble. And that's exactly what happened in this particular case. Poor, poor Saul and his really big ego were shamed by David's notoriety. He really did love David. But when the people sang this song, it just infuriated him because now he felt like he was second best. How dare those people talk about David being better than him? He's the king. He should have had lots of confidence in himself, though. You would think that, right? After all, he'd been chosen by God to be the king of Israel. Chosen by God, right? Wouldn't that look awesome on a resume? <laughs> but Saul allows his jealousy to cloud his judgment, and he behaves very badly. Saul, who had taken David into his court and loved him greatly, now feels raging anger because the people have praised David just a little bit more than him. 
he's so angry that now he has to see David dead. He can no longer allow this man to live because the people love him more than they love King Saul. So he attempts to kill David not once but several times. And Jonathan, who we heard last week, loved David more than the love of a woman, pleads for David's life. Dad, what are you doing? This man, he, he, he saved us from the Philistines. He killed Goliath. He plays a harp for you and makes you feel better. How could you do this? And so Saul agrees. Okay, you're right, son. He did do all that. I promise. I'll stop. You can have David back in our home anytime. And I promise I will never harm one little hair on his head. Liar, liar, pants on fire. What's going on here? As one of my professors used to say in seminary, you lie and the truth ain't in you. Saul, my man, have you no integrity? How can you do this? How can you use David to meet your needs and then when you're threatened by his power, turn around and try to murder him? What is it that would make Saul so crazy that he had to see David dead? He had to lie to his son over and over again. I'll tell you what it was. It was his larger-than-life ego. Saul, who was acting so very human, had this false image of who he was. He saw himself as the man who came to save Israel, the powerful, the almighty, the magnificent king appointed by God. How dare the people say that David had killed more than he had when Saul's self-image was threatened by David's display of power, he tried to kill David, whom he loved. He lied. He threw fits of raging anger. And all of this was done for one reason, to safeguard that image of who he thought he was, that delusion that he had created, not only for himself, but for others to see. Saul had lost his integrity. According to author Eckhart Tolle, we have all created this image of who we think we are. However, this image is our ego and really has very little to do with who we are. We think certain things about ourselves and we label those things. I am a woman, a retired naval officer, a clergy person. I have gray hair and I feel old, but I've dyed my gray hair so you won't think that I'm old. <laughs> oh no, so now there are two images I have of me, the one that I have and the one that I project to you. And you see, just like me, you have an image of who you think you are and an image that you want others to see. No wonder relationships are so difficult because we never know who we're looking at at any given time. 
am I seeing you or am I seeing the you that you want me to see or am I seeing the you that just slipped out that you didn't want yourself to see or anybody else? <laughs> Who is this person? These labels, these projections of ourselves, these are all just images. It's not the real me. See? <laughs> God's timing is always perfect. <laughs> the real me is that divine spark from within. Some refer to it as our soul. It's that essence of me that was, that is, and that always will be. This is what Jesus spoke of when he talked of eternal life. To help you better understand this concept, I'm going to share with you a story that I heard. About four years ago, I was very fortunate to see one of my favorite authors in lecture here in Houston. It was Marcus Borg. He's a very famous author, theologian, college professor. And he came to speak. And he recounted a story to us that he had heard from some friends of his. They were a young couple. They had just had their second child, a wonderful, beautiful baby boy. They also had a little five-year-old girl at home who was very excited to have a new baby brother. And so they brought their baby home, and the little girl, oh man, she's so eager to help out. She's always there wanting to help mom with the baby, loving having a new brother. One day she says to her parents, I need to talk to him alone. What? What can a five-year-old have to say to her baby brother that she needs to do this alone? And they tried to ask her what it was she needed, and she just wouldn't tell him. No, I need to, I need to talk to him. Well, at first they were just not willing to leave their brand-new baby with an unsupervised five-year-old but she absolutely insisted. In fact, she demanded in a way that only five-year-olds can demand. And so finally, her parents gave in. They relented. They figured, what could it hurt? We'll put the baby in the crib. She can't possibly take him out of the crib. She can't really hurt him. And we could listen to what's going on on the baby monitor. So they put him to bed. They told her, okay, you can go in and tell your brother goodnight and and talk to him. And then they ran in their room to listen to the baby monitor. They hear these little steps coming into the room and imagine their surprise when they hear the little girl say, tell me about God. I forgot. That brought goosebumps to my arms when I heard that story. I thought that was absolutely amazing that she would say that to them. Imagine their surprise. Here she is, a brand new five-year-old girl, hasn't been in the world long, but she understands that she had an innate knowledge of God, an inborn knowledge. She knew God when she was born, and yet she was beginning to forget. 
out of the mouth of babes come some of our most profound truths, you see, because I believe she knew exactly what she was talking about. She was going to her brother who was brand new and fresh in the world who still had that vivid memory of God and asking him, help me remember because I've almost forgotten what a wise little person she was. Because I believe also that our spiritual being is at one with God. But at the moment of our birth, our spiritual being kind of takes a back seat. We start focusing on our physical body. That's what Eckhart Tolle refers to as our form, our physical body. And from the point from birth on, we begin to overlook our spiritual identity. That spiritual identity begins to fade into the background and our focus becomes all-encompassing on this physical body of ours, this physical form. We lose sight of that spiritual connection that our spirit had with God when we come into this world. Because you see, from birth, we start paying attention to everything that's going on in this body. We feel a lack in our belly, and so we start crying and howling, and our mom feeds us. We feel cold, and our grandmother takes us and bundles us in a blanket and, and holds us to her to keep us warm. We feel lonely, and our uncle takes us and puts us on the floor and plays with us. We're tired and we are crying and we're whimpering and our dad takes us and rocks us in our arms until we go to sleep. You see, we learn from the very beginning that it takes something or someone from outside ourselves to fulfill our needs. That's how we learn to survive in the world. And so as a child, it's natural to think that the universe revolves around us, right? Everything is all about me. But as we mature, we start to differentiate between ourselves and that that is outside of us. We learn that our mother's only purpose in the world is not just to take care of us, she loves playing bridge, and she has a job, and she has some friends, and she does her own thing. Our father's sole purpose in life is not just to take care of us and to provide for us. He has other interests in the world. But that way that we learn to connect with the world is what is called our ego. Our ego is basically what we think and what we feel about the outside world. It's that little voice in our heads. You know that little voice, right? Right now, my ego is saying, are you gonna make your point and tie all this together sometime <laughs> soon? Or are you just gonna continue to ramble? Well, it's important to lay the groundwork. You want the people to understand they, you want them to have a point of reference, right? Well, Mark back there, he's getting really bored. He's starting to think about what the gospel ensemble is going to sing in three weeks. 
and Judy back there, she's starting to fall asleep. What are you doing? Does my hair look okay? Is, is the gray starting to show through? Does this robe make me look fat? You know what I'm talking about, right? I use a different voice to distinguish between the conversation that's going on in my head, but it really is all the same. Do you have that constant conversation going on in your head, or am I just crazy? That's a rhetorical question. Please don't answer. There's no need to answer. That ongoing voice in our heads is what we refer to as our ego. This is who we think we are or who we want others to think we are. Eckhart Tolle says that the motivating force behind everything that we do is driven from our ego. Everything we do is to stand out, to be important, uh-oh, to be in control. Who has that issue? to fill that lack that we always feel. Now, my beloved, I'm going to share something with you because I think you deserve the truth. This is my truth. You all have your own truth, but this is mine. The only reason I'm sharing it is because I think that there are some of you out there who can relate to what I'm going to say. Just a few of you. I have lived most of my life in this state of egoic dysfunction. For too long, I went from relationship to relationship, trying to fill that gnawing hole within me. I'd do almost anything if I thought that it would make that feeling of lack go away, that feeling that I was lacking something essential in my life. I constantly reverted back to the behavior that worked for me when I was a child, finding something or someone outside of myself to fill my needs. But no matter what I did, the solution was always temporary. This is how it would go. I'd meet someone who I thought was the one. You know, the one. I'd meet her and I'd think that, oh man, this woman is perfect. And even if she did have a couple of traits that didn't quite suit me, it was okay because I could change her into the one. Ooh, how many of us have been there? Ah, oh, I finally found someone who completes me. Doesn't matter who it was. I would look to her to fulfill all my needs. But no one can survive that expectation. No one can stay up on that pedestal, can they? It's impossible. No one or no thing, no drug, no alcohol, no chocolate fudge sundae, and certainly no person can fill that lack. Now, what I thought was love starts to turn to resentment because I eventually figure out she's not meeting all my needs. And of course, at the same time, she's figuring out the same thing about me. 
So there lies a problem. Love turns into anger. Anger turns into bitterness. And we wind up blaming each other for not filling those needs that we constantly feel. And I'm ashamed to admit that sometimes I would even stay with a woman knowing she wasn't the one that I was looking for, but the relationship was convenient, at least until I found the right one. The outcome was always the same. Eventually we would break up and then I would repeat the same behavior over and over and over again. Do y'all know what the definition of insanity is? It's repeating the same behavior over and over and expecting a different outcome. And so I've lived most of my life in a mild state of insanity. Can I get an amen? amen. Absolutely. Any of y'all out there experience something similar? It doesn't have to be a person. It could be your drug of choice. It could be gambling, it could be food, you name it, whatever. If you're looking for something to fill that gnawing hole with inside you, that lack that just never seems to go away, that emptiness that is pervasive in everything. My drug of choice was love relationships. I just loved being in love. As it turns out, most of those relationships had very little to do with love and an awful lot to do with lies. And most of these lies were lies that I told myself. They were lies that helped me sustain that all-important image of who I was and who I wanted others to think that I was. They were lies in which I convinced myself that someone else out there could fill my needs, could make that emptiness go away. Someone else could fill that gaping hole within me. But I finally came to realize that that hole was what I call a God hole. It's created when our spiritual identity takes a back seat to our physical identity. And the only way to fill this hole comes from within. This hole is filled when we come to terms with the fact that we are not always going to have this body. And soon enough, this body will cease to function. However, the real me will live on because the real me is something timeless, indestructible, and eternal. The real me was never really disconnected from God like the five-year-old little girl. I forgot. I forgot who God was, and I felt so totally disconnected. And like that little girl, all I needed was someone to help me remember. Someone to help me remember my spiritual identity. Some amazing friends who I like to call followers of Jesus because the term Christian has always had some really negative connotations for me. 
but some of these followers of Jesus and the wonderful people of MCC pointed me to the teachings of Jesus. He is the brother who helped me remember. He is the brother who had freshly come from God and helped me recall my spiritual identity, my own connection to God. This remembering is what Eckhart Tolle calls our awakening. And when we experience a spiritual awakening, we come to the realization that we don't need to lie or manipulate others to meet our needs. We don't need to keep up that image of who we think we are or who we want others to think we are. This is real integrity, my friends. If Saul would have had that kind of integrity, he would have understood that nothing that David did, nothing that the people sang could ever diminish who he was in the eyes of God. You know, a couple of years ago, I admitted to you all that I was a logophile. It doesn't mean that I watch the Logo channel till 3 o'clock every morning. A logophile is a person who loves words. Logo, Latin for word, file, is a lover of something. And so being the logophile that I am, I had to research the word integrity. Some things I expected to find was that integrity was an adherence to moral and ethical principles. Integrity means honesty. But there was another meaning to integrity that really struck me as being very significant to this sermon. And that meaning said that integrity is the state of being whole, entire, or undiminished. Wow. Integrity is how we live our lives then when we remember our spiritual connectedness to God. Integrity is not only being honest with others, but being true to ourselves. Integrity is a quality that we struggle to embody every day. Being human means that we won't always get it right. Being human means that we're not perfect. And it also means, yes, that we do have this physical body, but we are not just a physical being. We are also a spiritual being. We can use each day as a new opportunity to be better, to strive to live with integrity, and to remember our spiritual identity. The me that will always be and will always be with God. Amen. Thank mm -hmm. you.